I can tell you, Ricky, firsthand, talking to a lot of very senior executives, those who were, uh, you know, they cut too much, they let a lot of people go because they thought AI would replace, they actually are regretting because they're realizing AI could be a way to be able to increase productivity, creativity significantly, potentially even getting to new businesses. I'm Ricky Mulvey, and that's Benam Tabrizi. He's the author of Going on Offense, a leader's playbook for perpetual innovation. He's a faculty member of Stanford University's executive program and an expert on transformation, studying high-performing organizations. We had a chat about Microsoft's turnaround under Satya Nadella, why established car makers can't quite seem to catch up with Tesla, and one company using artificial intelligence to create a competitive advantage. Your book is about how innovative, agile companies develop winning mindsets. It's not a secret sauce, but it helps you with some of the tools and formulas that those organizations uh, have developed. I think there's at least a semester's worth of business school wisdom in there. And one of the um, sort of the two organizations that you're excited that in our pre-conversation to juxtapose and talk about right now is Google versus Amazon. Why, why are you so excited about the, the comparison between these two companies? What's, what's really amazing is uh, their starting point is very interesting because they had new CEOs, fresh CEOs coming on board. Uh, in case of, um, uh, in case of uh, Microsoft, it was 2014 when Satya Nadell uh, came from the cloud division and started running uh, uh, Microsoft. And at that time, Microsoft wasn't doing well. And a lot of people thought that this is going to be business as usual. A year later, Sundar Pichai joined as the CEO of Google, and uh, he was also a Google veteran. And at that time, Google was doing pretty well, and uh, people thought that Google is going to continue to do better and better and better. Now, from, a, from someone who is a student of transformation, what is interesting is what exactly Satya Nadell did in terms of transforming hearts and minds of every employee in Microsoft. He said, we want to connect to the soul of, of Microsoft. I wrote a HBR article about how uh, Microsoft became innovative again. And, you know, basically they didn't have a lot of expertise in AI. Um, at some point, 70% uh, of the top talent in AI were actually working for Google and, uh, Basically, with the ChatGPT introduction uh, late last year, uh, Microsoft took the thunder out of uh, Google's, uh, you know, uh, repertoire. And we've been, uh, you know, we've been studying Google quite a bit. And uh, unfortunately, uh, it's become like an organization where there are lots of uh, layers, if you will. You have to go through this layer, very conservative, cash cow business. And on the other hand, uh, you know, uh, I, I talk about in, in lots of detail about how Microsoft has been running in all cylinders and, and all the moves that Microsoft has done from a bold point of view, from uh, raising the status of engineers and, 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 you know, doubling down on cloud, on AI acquisition. And so it's a fascinating case study when you juxtapose the two. 
Yeah, Google is sort of famous for having, um, you know, encouraging their employees to go above and beyond with their roles. What is it? Twenty uh, percent of your time should should lead to you developing something else. And from what it sounds like you're telling me, many of the employees there feel perhaps a bit stuck in what is now a very established organization that maybe. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but bleeding into the day two, less startup kind of mindset. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, uh, they still have a lot of talent, so I wouldn't rule them out in terms of coming back. Both of their founders are back. Sergey is come, is come back and working on the AI. Uh, so uh, they have a lot of talent, but they, they let this... Uh, culture kind of slip and this is really the whole point about that's why i use the word perpetual uh, is is that you got to constantly you know be there and 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 work on your culture and improve your culture and as as satya nadel uh, is quoted by saying is that you know a lot of times companies could be very successful with one or two products but if they don't continuously innovate if they don't fire up the imagination of their people they're going to fall behind. One piece of this uh, sort of perpetual innovation and culture is also finding companies with an existential purpose. Yes. Um, and I know this is for leaders in, in business organizations. I think it's also an interesting question uh, as an investor, if you're looking through the companies that you own in your, for, in your IRA, excuse me, or your brokerage account, does this company have an existential purpose? Do I understand it? And this is something that Satya Nadella really had to find at Microsoft. You said in the book, quote, that the closest thing the company had to an animating purpose was the longstanding goal of a PC on every desk and in every home running Microsoft software, end quote. That seems like a pretty decent reason for a company to exist is to sell the products they make. Absolutely. And, you know, and he has since modified that to say we want to empower every individual and every organization in the planet to achieve more. And, you know, the way I define this is uh, by existential purpose is not just having a mission statement and paying lip service. It's when your leaders, when your people truly believe in it, they're committed to that cause. And this is what I found with the most innovative sample and, and organizations based on evidence-based, lots of uh, interviews and so forth. And that is, you know, the, 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 these people are committed. They feel like they're part of a much larger cause. You know, I've, I've since uh, early 2000, I've been really interested about why is it companies just show up at work? And I mean, a Gallup poll survey of uh, engagement shows at most, at most 30% of people in U.S. are engaged. You know, the rest are either disengaged or sabotaging work and so forth. And why is it that people willing to die for a cause? And in some ways, uh, these organizations create this cause, this existential purpose where people rally behind and they connect what I call their inside out to what the purpose of the organization is. And the way that Nadella transformed this was essentially by making Microsoft more collaborative, both internally and then also externally. You talk about in the book his demonstrations using an Apple iPhone, and, and in some cases, giving Microsoft applications away for free. Clearly, this has proven to be a good idea, but you can imagine at the time where this would have created tremendous pushback and um, arrive, like uh, internal conflict. Absolutely. And, and, and you, you have definitely read the book uh, cover to cover, Ricky, and, and a great point. 
collaboration is a, uh, you know, I decided to devote one chapter of the book on collaboration. And, you know, collaboration is not just like two people or three people working together. It's extreme, extreme collaboration, radical collaboration, where hierarchies don't matter. You know, you, you need to get something done, you just make it happen. Don't let these walls that organizations arbitrarily create to stop you from getting things done ASAP. And he actually took that to another level. And as you said, he collaborated with an organization that potentially you would think would be a competitor. But he saw this, and this is what, what really the, the visionary leaders is, is, is really all about. He saw this as what I call out-of-the-box move that could increase the momentum and market share of Microsoft, and it has. So lots of credit. I'm speaking to you right now on a Mac Air that has Windows operating system running on. Yeah, and when we talk about existential visions, I think there's one company that, that you both criticize and sort of celebrate in the book, seems to be in the middle, and that's Meta. Um, and this has sort of proven to be an exception to the rule of, do you really need an existential vision? Companies had some issues running into regulatory problems. There's been uh, The stock has been on a bit of a roller coaster ride. But also, despite not having an existential vision, it's created it has three, uh, what is it, three billion active users on its platform, the num still the number one social media app with Instagram, and it seems to be doing pretty well. It seems to be doing pretty well, especially uh, the past few months. But, but let me share with you why, because uh, as, as someone who studies these things, I'm interested to go double click and go into deeper, if you will. And so what happened is, Meta or Facebook started having the same type of problem that Google had. And uh, they started having layer after layer. In fact, I have a slide that I showed that they had at some point, I think, 10 or 12 layers, very slow moving. Uh, the productivity went down. A lot of people were just showing up to work, but there was not much getting done and so forth. So all of a sudden, in about six months or eight months uh, uh, ago, uh, kind of Zuckerberg kind of put his foot on the gas. He went on to this, uh, you know, perpetual innovation journey. And uh, he, he really tried to turn the ship around. And so far, the results have been really good. But again, what I, what I really see is he drifted from the concept that I talk about in the book. And we saw that happening. That's why, uh, from your point of view and your reader's point of view, the stock was really having a tough time last year, late last year. But once they were able to turn the ship around, based on the eight concepts that I talk about in the book, they're able now to kind of do much better. We also need to also realize that uh, he came in really strong about this Web 3.0, and, and now he's completely pivoted. And, and uh, he doesn't talk about that as much as he talks about AI. And, and, and so there was a lot of investment he made on that, that probably he has to write off quite a bit of it. Yeah, and it's a huge cultural question mark for me at uh, Meta. In the book, you discuss these high-performing organizations. They're, I mean, and brutally unafraid to let people go in the case of um, Tesla, in the case of Netflix, now, in the case of Meta, I would I, I have to imagine that many of the employees there might feel so much more uncertainty about what they're supposed to do and who's coming and going. 
because the expectations are are constantly shifting for them there. Yes. You know, um, this is an important question you're asking, and that is, uh, you know, letting people go. People I talk to, let's talk about the extreme case, which is Tesla, you know, which has probably one of the strongest existential purpose of any company. I mean, people are just, you know, really feel like working for Tesla is a calling. They feel like they're changing the planet. They're changing the world. People I talk to. And they also knew that their tenure probably is not going to be very long because they're asked to do impossible things. And sometimes you just may not make it. And so um, in some ways, uh, many people I talked to, for example, on the Tesla's case, they felt like, you know, even two, three years of being in that type of a boot camp, very chaotic, but extremely innovative, uh, would actually help their career. And, and in, in this case, has helped a lot of these people's career by, by really seeing uh, the ferociousness and the ferocity of which this organization moved. But more importantly, by, by seeing how the known methods don't mean anything in Tesla. You know, uh, I mean, I'm going to give a SpaceX example, but it really relates to uh, Tesla too. Uh, who would have thought that you could get a shuttle uh, you know, uh, up there and, uh, you know, landed on a piece of wood on an ocean somewhere. I mean, that itself is a huge, I mean, basically they ask questions about the fundamental laws of physics and say, why can't we do it? And they were able to accomplish it and save a lot of money. So that's why, you know, organizations in, in the, in the car industry have a tough time catching up to Tesla and their innovation because they are still using a lot of known methods. Let's gather all the data. Let's decide whether this is the right way. Whereas, uh, you know, Tesla is scrappy. They try different things. If it doesn't work, they iterate. So they have a very much what I call a startup culture of continuously trying different things and have big, hairy, audacious gold, you know, about a lot of things that they're doing. Well, and maybe the separation point between the, exp- what is it? The, you can have the highest of expectations is the amount of autonomy that you give employees. So you could, if you have incredibly high expectations, but low autonomy, then I think you're going to have talent problems. But if, if you have incredibly high expectations and high autonomy, you're going to attract a lot of talent. That was the case in the book for, for Netflix. And that's also the case for uh, advanced micro devices. And Lisa Sue, who you really highlight, uh, she had to rebuild the company in 2014. What, is, what has she done to really attract talent to that organization? You know, Lisa, Lisa Sue is truly a, a, a brilliant, accomplished innovator, a PhD from Stanford in electrical engineering, uh, you know, a, a humble leader, but also expects very high from her employees. Uh, this was a David and Goliath story. I mean, uh, Intel, uh, those of uh, your, your uh, you know, those, those people who are actually watching this, uh, at, 15 years ago or 20 years ago, Intel was the only semiconductor company and AMD was very small market share. And again, uh, I talk about this in the book, how Intel kind of lost its momentum and mojo after Andy Grove left. And it became another one of those uh, organizations with high inertia and potentially toxic culture. Whereas Lisa Sue was running an all cylinder um, all the things that I talk about in the book they were doing, um, the, the whole thing, if I may summarize your question, Ricky, is 
a big part of perpetual innovation is unleashing your talent. And, you know, uh, if you really, if you compare Intel and AMD, you can't say like AMD has better talent than Intel. No. But Lisa Su and her leaders, and she has amazing leaders, know how to unleash uh, the talent within the organization. Now, this thing is, is, is work in progress. All of a sudden, uh, for those of us who are in Silicon Valley, uh, NVIDIA, when people were saying the death of Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley is dead, NVIDIA came, and a lot of people didn't know NVIDIA, and now it's a trillion-dollar organization. And now Lisa Su is faced with a challenge because NVIDIA got into AI, took the big bet, got into the video game so they can do high-end processing. Now Lisa Su is pivoting AMD and, and applying these techniques that I talk about in the book to be able to catch up or perhaps surpass NVIDIA. And so it is a fascinating uh, uh, regimen by which it's so critical. And that's part of why I wrote this book. This book wasn't about uh, one concept and write the whole book. It's about a holistic approach to an organization to make sure that they're constantly innovative and they have perpetual innovation. Yeah, and one reason that she's probably able to to pivot this organization fairly quickly is that she was able to develop what we'll perhaps call a flat-ish organization. I think there's what five layers at AMD, and you know when we think back to a, the company like Google, which has become more hierarchical and and I don't want to use the word stagnant, um, she may be able to make that pivot a bit bit more quickly to compete with Nvidia uh, because she's. Yeah, she's managed to create a flatter organization. That was too long-winded, but yeah, now. No, no, you're right. You're right. And a lot of a lot of some oftentimes my colleagues kind of simplify this to the point of, okay, let's flatten the organization, let's have less layer. Yeah, they they might have less layer, but at the end of the day is how they operate within that layer. So what I call this perpetual transformation play playbook, if you will, or perpetual innovation playbook. It's an operating model by which your organization works regardless of your hierarchies. And that operating model is about radical collaboration. It's about the startup mindset. It's about existential purpose. It's being bold. It's being fired up to make a difference and unleashing talent. And I think those are the, the critical secret sauce to be able to have a perpetual inno innovation engine and people that could be perpetual innovators. I think one distinction I want to add is that, as you mentioned early on, this book is not just about how can leaders and organization become perpetual innovator. It's also about how individually you in your career can actually be a perpetual innovator by applying these holistic uh, characteristics that I talk about in the book. Yeah, and, and one framework is that, that I enjoyed, and this is more personal than than in investing or, or perhaps more like business leadership is is thinking about projects in terms of is this something that's very a very complex process that I can delegate but it's going to be certain or is this a highly uncertain process that I'm working on and how do I think about these differently because you know for most jobs you're going to be dealing with both scenarios but we often apply sort of the same mental models to both scenarios. Yes. And I devote a chapter on this, which is a critical characteristics. And it started with my uh, doctoral thesis in the 1990s at Stanford, where uh, what I found is when you have very uncertain environments, 
those organizations that iterated a lot were able to get to market faster and get the better product than those organizations that kind of planned, planned, and then they they uh, executed. Um, and at that time, it was kind of like a new concept. It became the early on foundation of agile development. Later on, it was called ambidextrous organization, but you really need two types of thinking and the organizational model and the way you work, it's so different between these two models. One is highly uncertain, one is very predictable, one is more new platform, breakthrough products, one is more incremental products that there are organizations that do really well. I talk about Amazon because people think of Amazon, oh, they just continuously improve their um, you know, their site and it becomes a seamless experience, one click. Uh, and they've spoiled us. You know, every time I, I go to anyone's website, any company, if they're not up to Amazon sta- standards, uh, it's not that fun. And so uh, that's really what, what the whole point is, is they were able to get to cloud. They were able to get to, um, you know, uh, Kindle. And a lot of those things were uncertain. And it was kind of what I would call a a, a products that created huge, huge uh, business for Amazon. Yeah, Amazon Web Service probably being the largest of them. What it's it's pretty much their entire profit engine, and it and it came from them being unhappy with the computer servers that were helping their then yes much much smaller retailer. Um, and Amazon is is the uh, is a great poster child for this. But I also appreciated how you highlighted some lesser known companies, one of which is Whirlpool. We don't often think of perpetual innovation and washing machines in the same sentence, but how has Whirlpool been able to use these uh, use perpetual innovation to encourage employees to bring new ideas and and stand out in the appliance marketplace? Yeah, I mean Whirlpool, uh, to their credit, uh, they have extreme collaboration. The ferocity uh, I've noticed, you know, when when you go to to these organizations and visit, you see at the they're at the different speed. It's kind of for those who uh, like soccer, it's like soccer at the at the professional level, where at versus a college level, um, they do a lot of analytics. They're they're very much customer obsessed, and they constantly get uh, feedback from the customers. Uh, I, I've after doing this research, uh, I've, I've realized it's not just obsessed about customers. They love their customers, and they're constantly trying to innovate for them. And you know uh, the other thing that Whirlpool does, which is amazing, is they constantly invent and try to simplify things within their organization. So, uh, as we spoke, perpetual innovation is the constant, constant focus on unleashing the culture and taking your cultural performance to a next level, so that you can perpetually innovate and survive. You know, bottom line, if I could just say two things. Uh, uh, about this book. This book is about how can you future-proof your organization. And for individual, if they're interested, how could you future-proof yourself? One way that folks are going to have to future-proof themselves is by learning how to use artificial intelligence. Yes. I know you recently gave a gave a talk at Stanford that was called uh, that was about using AI as a competitive advantage. Those listening, they. Most of them probably were not able to attend that talk, so I'm hoping you can share maybe some of the spark notes, the crypt notes, uh, for, for for our folks listening. Yes. So, a spark note would be 
AI is already making a difference. I mean, uh, 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 I was talking to the, uh, the mammogram department at Stanford and I have family members who actually uh, were able to bypass a intrusive uh, surgery because of AI. They were able to, and the database, millions and millions of cases where there was cancer, there were no cancer, were able to say whether we need surgery or not. So uh, avoid a lot of spurious and unneeded surgery and things like that. It's already making a difference for me. Uh, it's now my research assistant. I bounce back ideas. At the same time, we have to be careful with all the problems with AI that you're reading about. So um, a, a colleague of mine, uh, Ricardo Vargas, talks about 5%, 85%. And you know, the first 5% you get involved, you try different things, and then you let it maybe give you the first draft, but then you're responsible for that 15, last 15%. And at the end of the day, uh, not, not you, Ricky, because you, you, you're still very young, but my generation is scared of this thing and they're, they're worried that, you know, it will replace their job. There's a lot of fear. And my whole point is your CEO, your top leaders need to embrace this technology, need to have a plan, need to have a data architecture. And the bottom line is AI is not going to replace people. AI will replace people who do not augment their work with AI. Yeah, there's going to be folks... I and I, I think one of the, the scary parts of this is for a lot of technological processes and, and innovations, it's always been the threat of replacing, let's say, blue-collar work. Yes. It's never happened. Farmers, manufacturing, that kind of thing. Artificial intelligence is the first time where a lot of the white-collar workers have a target on their backs now. Yes. Um, if you're doing uh, contract, like even let's say contract law, if you're building out um, – property deeds for for a business you might be able to send that to an artificial intelligence platform that can get you to good enough pretty easily yes very good point that's why my uh, my uh, good friend and someone i had the privilege of, uh, privilege of mentoring who's now started this amazing ai company bobak palavan and i we wrote an article in harvard business review is how to go offense on ai and we made the exact point you made and that is when you apply the concepts of this book, when you apply all these eight key characteristics that we talked about, you would be able to take your organization to an extreme higher level of productivity, applying AI rather than having have to like lay off people and let people go. And I can tell you, Ricky, firsthand, talking to a lot of very senior executives, those who were uh, you know, they cut too much. They let a lot of people go because they thought AI would replace. They actually are regretting because they're realizing AI could be a way to be able to increase productivity, creativity significantly, potentially even get into new businesses. That's why, uh, by the way, I, I want to share with you this, uh, this story. Someone in my class uh, mentioned that there was this, there's this Indian company that uh, is in the IT services at Wipro, that their CEO called on everybody, very large company, and basically said, we're not going to replace your job with AI, but we're going to increase productivity significantly. And uh, But you need to apply AI to your work so you increase your productivity. Then he created a four-hour class, Sesame Street Simple, where everybody got what AI was. They got the same language, 
And people who took those four hours, I haven't seen it, but they think it's out of this world, how simple and how inspiring that is. So all hands up on deck with Wipro and credit to their CEO. Well, and that's one company you can't talk about. I'm hoping that there is one you can when you think of companies who are using AI for a comp- as a competitive advantage. Who do you think of? Well, uh, I definitely, uh, you know, I, I like uh, the uh, Photoshop company, you know, the uh, Adobe. Adobe. I yeah. think Adobe is a great, great example. I love this example, Ricky. Let me share with you why. Because in, in my book, I made sure I also studied companies that didn't do well, right? Companies such as Blockbuster, you know, and Nokia and Borders. And I wanted to know why is it that they, they kind of went down. And I realized they weren't perpetual innovators. They didn't move fast enough. And AI was a huge disruption to Adobe's business. And uh, people kind of, there was a lot of writing. I, I think you can find these articles where they said the end of Adobe, Adobe is dead. And yet their stock price went up 30%. Why? Because they went on offense, perpetually innovated, came up with a product. They actually use their data set. And again, data is the new oil in the AI world. They use their data set to go on offense and come up with products that, that you know, creates thousands and thousands of images but their uh, customers are now able to you know, create millions of images using their product. So kudos to them about how they were able to react vis-a-vis when you compare them to Borders and Nokia and other organizations. They went all in. Yeah, those organizations didn't even get the chance to use AI, um, but it would have been interesting to see how that played out. Well, that's all the time we have. Our guest, Dr. Benham Tabrizi, his book, it's called Going on Offense, A Leader's Playbook for Perpetual Innovation. It's out now. Appreciate you joining us and thank you so much for your time and your insight for Motley Fool Money listeners. And thank you, Ricky, for reading the book and having this lively conversation. I really appreciate it. Likewise. As always, people on the program may own stocks mentioned, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. I'm Ricky Mulvey. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.